Hey guys, you're listening to Metal Matters, a weekly Gimme Radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill. If you like metal, punk, hardcore, or anything extreme, you've come to the right place. So subscribe and never miss out. Thanks for tuning in. We have another Classic Records episode in store for you. Author, journalist, and musician Anthony Papalardo joins me to discuss Black Flag's sixth and final record, In My Head. In My Head is definitely not a go-to record for most people, but for me, it was a real game changer. I mean, I love their back catalog, but this record in particular really sunk its hooks into me, and it became an influence on the music that I would later create in my life, so it had a very deep impact on me. For any of you who have been listening for any given amount of time, you'll understand that the classic nature of some of these records is highly subjective. Sometimes we go for the obvious ones, but oftentimes we go for the more obscure records, the ones that became an influence that kind of changed the game or moved the needle. Black Flag's In My Head is one of those records. If you dig the show, be sure to leave a review on iTunes. Also, you can share on social media. If you have any questions or want to suggest a topic or just get in touch, the best place to hit me up is on Instagram. I recently changed my handle to Michael underscore DC underscore Hill. Uh, The old handle seemed a little bit smarmy, so I decided to act like an adult and have an adult Instagram handle. Once again, Michael underscore DC underscore Hill. And if your question is legit, I'll probably end up reading it on the episode. Black flag in my head. This one is like probably my favorite Black Flag record up there with Damaged. And uh, it's also a, a record by them that is uh, fairly unsung when it comes to fans' preferences. Yeah, I think so. Especially anytime it's, some, it's a last work of a band, um, people, people look at it differently, I think. And they either look at it like they want more or... It's the the cliche is like you could hear the band breaking up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I never. Uh, for me, this was almost the beginning of a direction I wish I would have liked to seen what came after it. Yeah, it's kind of how I feel about it too. I mean, you know, there's there's definitely all these different camps when it comes to Black Flag. There's the people that love Keith Morris. There's like the Dez guys. There's mm-hmm. and. You know, there's a lot of Rollins haters. I noticed that in the 90s and in the late 80s, you know, like you would you would say that you like the Rollins era Black Flag and people would look at you like, oh, you know, Rollins. I hate that version of the band. Yeah, that's the cool thing. You know, that's that's that was a cool stance to take when. I don't know, like, why, why do we have to break it down? It's just like. You like different things, whatever. I like the drill sergeant. Rollins era and I like the poetry Rollins era like I like the evolution what I like is he, you see a band evolving yeah. or, or or just changing yeah and um my favorite thing about this record because I was thinking about it a lot listening to it a lot in preparation for this you could say that take blast right like that's a pretty common one like they're completely black flag inspired and they yeah. were able to like execute it really well and then make their own thing out of it I don't, I can't think of anything, and this is something we can talk about later because I was going to ask you. I don't know of anything that sounds like this, this record at all, or anyone who could say, like, our whole th- thing was based off this record. If it was, then they, they, what the band did was so interesting that it wasn't ripping it off because it's, I just think it's a very unique sounding record. I think that most bands, are unable to actually rip this record off you mm-hmm. know and that's just because greg ginn is like such a unique talent like in the world of music sure you know and it's like saying that you rip off ornette coleman or something like that yeah you know absolutely. you're ripping off some jazz guy and i really i've always felt that greg ginn was like the john coltrane of hardcore or, you know whatever you want punk rock or hardcore punk or you know whatever metal i mean because this record actually does have a pretty metal production if you think about sure. it sure but uh, but yeah, let's before we get into the record, let's just just you know describe it a little bit. You know, I mean, as we all know, Black Flag was formed in 1976, Hermosa Beach, California, by Greg Ginn. 
Originally, the uh, band was called Panic. On, on a side note, do you remember the band in Boston called Panic? I absolutely do, yeah. <laughs> I, I played a couple, of sh- I filled in a couple of shows for them, actually. Did they know the Black Flag was called Panic? Absolutely. Okay. That was the whole... That was like the thing. The name appropriation thing, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and most people probably know this, but Greg Ginn is the only consistent member from the beginning. And he's also the, the main man behind SST Records. And SST, like Black Flag is a sort of integral part to punk rock, hardcore, the DI, the whole DIY underground. I mean, they kind of set the band and the label set the blueprint for how things in the future would be done by bands doing things themselves, labels taking their, you know, their own empowering themselves to release music and come up with these alternative distributions and all this other stuff, all these networks of touring, all this stuff can be traced back basically to, Greg Ginn, Black Flag, SST Records. Yeah, and also of note is how organized they were at creating inner production companies and booking agencies and basically not only coming up, you know, along with DOA of the way bands toured, but actually setting up a system internally that if you were on SST, they could actually book you a tour and actually knew how to promo the record. And I think that helped probably so many bands get heard because it, you know eventually that catalog is all over the map and which is what's great about uh, SST is that how that you know they sprawled into Dinosaur Jr. and Sonic Youth, Sacred Trust it, you know it wasn't just this little uh it's not an identifiable sound yeah actually DOA was probably the only other band that really hit the road as hard as Black Flag yeah and they and they're always pretty they pretty carefully say that DOA, you know, did it first or at least gave them the inspiration or gave them the numbers of like, here's where you go. <laughs> yeah. Of playing like every little town, mm-hmm. not just the major cities. Yeah. Because, you know, you would, you would read accounts of like the early 80s, late 70s of like Fear, you know, primarily playing in San, you know, in L.A. and then taking jaunts up, up and down the, you know, the West Coast. But it was very... Um, very unusual for a lot of these bands to go out east or east coast bands to go out west and you know bands in the midwest to make it to either one of the coasts you know so yeah it was just that's that's the prototype i guess for bands doing it themselves taking it on the road and really doing things in a in a a more empowering sort of approach that way that leads us to in my head which is the final and sixth record by black flag and um there's been a lot of conjecture as to this record being actually a uh, Greg Ginn solo record that was turned into a Black Flag album. And you have some inside information from Kira regarding that sort of uh, urban myth, if you will. The record was recorded October 84, January 85, and March 85 at Total Access Recording, Redondo Beach, California. And um, the personnel on the record was Rollins on vocals, Greg Ginn on guitars, Kira Rosler on bass and backing vocals, and uh, the powerhouse Bill Stevenson on drums. It also, like all their other records, features the iconic artwork of Raymond Pettibone. And to me, the visual presentation of their music and the actual music itself are almost like one and the same. And I think that the, the band and the music perfectly complement each other. The you know the the artwork and the music are are perfect complements to each other. Yeah, it it builds the story, and this one's of note because it's the last artwork he did for Black Flag. Not just because it was their last record, because they did have subsequent records uh, releases after this, but because they used the artwork without his permission. And allegedly, Bill Stevenson cut it up and just juxtaposed it how he saw fit, and that drove Pettibone crazy. So, which is why you get the the EP that kind of is from the same session, the I Can See You EP, is probably was their worst record cover until they reunited. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, <laughs> I don't even want to think about the uh, reunion of, yeah. of this band. But, yeah, that's I try, to, I try to block that out of my mind, actually. It's, yeah, it's another thing. But also of note um, is that a lot of this was recorded before Loose Nut. And I guess it, it kind of gets stitched together because this, you know, this was, we'll get into it later with Kira's notes who both Kira and Joe Carducci were really gracious and, and fast in answering my questions about it. So really appreciate that. And, you know, just try to 
figure out the folklore around the record because you know there's it was rumored that it was supposed to be Greg Ginn's solo record, or maybe this was going to be a Gone record. So it's it's cool to have the people involved or the people around the band to fill in that story. Yeah, that's um. I just totally lost my my train of thought of what I was going to say about the about the record here. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the record actually, uh, there's a couple of different incarnations of it, different different sort of uh, pressings. There's the LP version, the cassette, and then there was that sort of EP that you just mentioned that came out like mm-hmm. a couple of years later. So the original tracks, uh, the program length with 37 minutes and 12 seconds. Side A being paralyzed. The Crazy Girl, Black Love, White Hot, title track in my head. Side B being Drinking and Driving, which features a, a great video. Retired at 21, Society's Tease, and It's All Up to You. The CD reissue is 47 minutes and 31 seconds, and that was released in 1990. It's basically the, the cassette. It's like all nine tracks plus the additions of Out of This World, I Can See You, and You Let Me Down. And then there was the, uh, the 1989 I Can See You EP, which features the tracks I Can See You, Kicking and Sticking, Out of This World, and You Let Me Down. And that's uh, basically, I guess, all those songs sort of, in my mind, make up this like one final effort that the band put out before disbanding. One weird note is that I was watching... Uh, the new version of Black Flag with uh, Mike V on vocals do a version of Kicking and Sticking with different lyrics. Really? So they, I don't know if that's eventually going to, because I'm like, I know this music, but it was called like Locked Out or something. And it was just a very repetitious, uh, off-tempo reworking of the song, which I thought was pretty weird as if, you know, because it's like, if you know Black Flag, you know that song. And I don't know, maybe, I don't know why they reworked it, but there is some like YouTube video of that. I think mislabeled as a new song or something. See, I like Mike V, but I don't know if I like him in Black Flag, you know, as a singer. Yeah. Nice dude. Cool dude. Um, I just don't think it's necessary. Yeah. <laughs> it's just. Did you catch anything? You, obviously you saw some of those reunions, yeah. right? Yeah, I resisted, man. Like, I didn't want to go, and then I found myself at um, the Black Flag show that happened at Warsaw in Brooklyn mm-hmm. a few years ago, and that was at Ron Reyes on vocals, and these two other guys that I'd never seen before. Yeah. You know? And um, actually, in my other podcast, and uh, Everything Went Black, I interviewed this guy who went down to audition for Black Flag as a bass player oh, right uh, on. When, when Greg was forming the band, or reforming the bands. Um, the whole concept behind that it was kind of like uh like a knife through my heart when i found out that they were going to try to pull something like this off because it was a time when i was kind of sick of all these reunions you know all these bands are reforming and i felt like i mean you know gorilla biscuits you know all these bands these new york hardcore bands getting back together for one last hurrah or to like cash some checks or whatever and i felt like you really can't be the same person that you were back in 1985 you know what i mean like yeah. 30 years later and it's like it's like the, the the argument was like oh all these new fans you know have to see the band but it's like they're still not really seeing the band even if you put all the original members together 30 years later you're not seeing the essence of that band the way they were and the way they were when they wrote these songs and performed these songs so seeing I got I to gotta admit that I got a little excited when I saw Greg Ginn playing guitar. But within five minutes of me just basking in his brilliance, I was like, well, I kind of wish Greg had, had remained retired from Black Flag. Yeah, and not to, you know, it's, I feel bad picking anything apart, but that's what a podcast is, right? So let's do it. <laughs> I did not, I kind of didn't respect that Greg Ginn, this guy who put such a premium... Uh, musicianship and dedication i felt like the rest of the band ron reyes included was just dead weight yeah and it didn't have the punch and you know this is a guy who is a master of his craft 100 percent. pretty much made up a style of guitar playing like you said it's this you know jazz is a very loose term i like 
the specificity of like Ornette Coleman where it's like, or Coltrane, like you have to be a master of this to go outside of it. Yeah. And that's what he crafted and the work ethic. And I don't know, to come back and put this, you know, C level version of the band out there, whatever it's his band, I can't tell him what to do, but I didn't, it didn't add anything. It didn't have any urgency. And, you know, a guy in his fifties having an urgency, it doesn't, it doesn't have to, there's plenty of guys in their fifties that play jazz music in sixties and seventies. It just didn't have the, uh, the DNA of black flag to me. Yeah, exactly. You know? And, um, I just would rather have seen Greg make another record or I would, I would like to see him make or put a new band together and call it something, but just, I don't want to see him resurrect black flag, you know, and, and it would have been cool if he, you know, a lot of, he had a lot of solo records, all these different projects that came over the last couple of decades, but it would have been great to see him. I'm going to say something like, I'm going to form a band. We're going to make a record. I want to go out and tour. And this band might have some of the same sort of intensity as black flag, or we might try to do like the same sort of song format of like intense hardcore or whatever with my, with his own style added to it. And we're just going to go for it. But yeah, I would rather have seen that, but unfortunately, that's not what we got. So yeah, and I think I think to get back, kind of in the realm of this record, once you get out of the 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 way the band was working, right? Like every release, and even though I know this one kind of skips back by how it was recorded, to take off all this time and try to jump back into it, I, I just think it's impossible, especially with a totally different personnel, like what the sounds they were creating, you know, this is, I'll kind of get into this when I go into my personal history with it, but I think Black Flag are one of the few bands that each record informed the other record and they did something significantly different. And that was in, in some ways they're like the most generic punk band you can name. And then in other ways, there's nothing linear about them after even damaged. It just starts to go, you know, they kind of start, Maybe there's a bit of a Ramones influence, like everyone's influenced by the Ramones at that time. And then it quickly, Greg's guitar playing becomes such so iconic and so integral to the band and the different rhythm sections. And it's a, it's a band whose work builds off each other. And I actually feel pretty fortunate that I listen, I got into each album in sequence. You know, kind of... I felt like I had to, like I had it in my head, <laughs> literally yeah. like, okay, I, like I'm going to graduate to this one, you know, and then we can, we can talk about how I got into actually hearing this record, but I, I really think they're one of the few punk bands that there is an importance to how each record builds off the other. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, and I think that you can even lump loose nut and this record together, even, you know, because like you mentioned before, this record, some of this was recorded prior to loose nut, but sonically those records are very similar. Um, you know, the production, some of the song structures I think are similar, you know, I mean, in my head is way more abstract and kind of out there, but, um, you know, I read in spray paint the walls that, uh, you know, black unauthorized black flag biography that, in the studio, they were a being the mix to like Dio and like Black Sabbath records, mm -hmm. you know, like Mob Rules and like Heaven and Hell and stuff like that. And they wanted this kind of like powerful, like polished, like metal sound. Yeah, and definitely it shows on uh, Loose Nut and for sure on In My Head. They sound very different than the more raw production on the previous records. Uh, so I mean, you know, thematically, I think the vibe of the music is similar. But once we segue into the material on, in my head, I think it just sort of takes this like left turn and goes off into this kind of passage passageway that the band had never, you know, no bands really in that genre had even dreamt of going in that direction, really. Well, just on a production level, it sounds like they recorded the biggest record ever and then squ just squished it down into this like, like, honey i shrunk the band or whatever like it's so ins it sounds so insane and de depending on which format you hear it on because the folklore around sst is that they only ever mastered to lp so the cassettes and the cds were just they were actually cut off whatever the original master was so that's why they 
like the CDs sounds the worst. They're they're really low. There's no there's actually no fidelity. They're they're even more squished. So like when you hear that, that's even a more claustrophobic version of it. And allegedly the the tape's a little better than the CD, but it actually sounds like there's just some insane compression or I I can't describe The way I look at it is if you could, a lot of times if you're listening to a mix and it's very in front, and I know that's, you know, you just feel like there's not that much distance between you and the speaker. Every time I hear this record, I feel like it's 50 miles away. Yeah. And that's the allure of it. You know, that they created this thing that has a heaviness and intricacy and very like diabolical sounding without using any trope of that type of music. You know, that's like really what's a standout. And I, I, I just want to like, the New York Times actually reviewed this when it came out. And I always love their reviews because it has stuff like this. Uh, <clears throat> Mr. Ginn and his team players have used these ideas to build up the structures of the songs. The title tune, for example, is part waltz, part old times blues shuffle. But one doesn't hear the component. One hears the song and a sound. Other tunes use multiple and mixed meters Tempos of speed up and down, both abruptly and gradually. Stack chords that obliterate any sense of key center. And hearing the polyphony of shifting shapes that is the principal guitar motif in the brilliant white hot is like listening to the once revolutionary guitar break from the Yardbirds' mid-60s hit Shape of Things while one's turntable goes up in flames. So you have this like, you know, this very like over-academic writing, but it's pretty accurate. Of <laughs> Yeah, I'll buy that. Definitely. Um, you know, and it's, I would add something to the effect of like, you know, if you've read any of Rollins' journals or anything, you know, the band was like way into Black Sabbath, you know. Mm-hmm. And what comes to mind when I listen to like this record and especially like the later, you know, well, yeah, this record, specifically this record, is if you compare what Sabbath was doing on their first album and you listen to the drums, like the song The Wizard, right? the song speeds up and slows down. Like, like the band is just like this machine that knows that grows and contracts and expands Mm -hmm. together with, without any real regard to meter or, you know, time signatures, but they're just such a well rehearsed band that's together has played thousands of shows that they know when to slow up and, and, you know, and speed up and slow down. And, the wizard reminds me of this entire album where it's like this kind of loose, you know, bluesy sort of metallic blues, very uh, claustrophobic sounding record. And uh, to me, that's really what it sounds like. You know, yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, an aficionado on the Yardbirds or anything like that, <laughs> but it's like, I just keep it simple and like street level that to me, it sounds like the wizard yeah. <laughs> black, black, black Sabbath. I mean, like I wrote this down when I was thinking about this record, it's schizophrenic blues to me. It's their bluesiest record, but then it also goes off on these tangents and that like interplay is the best part of it to me that it goes really out. And often these like creepily melodic, like it has melodic riffs but they are just slightly off where they're the bad part of the fairy tale. They're like the yeah. the bear eating the kid. Like it's just not nice. And um and then just real traditional blues at times. And I think the fact that and we can get into again, we'll get into it later, that a lot of these songs were instrumentals, challenged Rollins to do something different with his vocals that I think informed his work going forward because especially I think when you get to Lifetime, when he has this really cool, like he actually starts to use his vocals as more of an instrument and they're not competing with the riffs anymore. And, and also too, it's, it's, it's when you hear Paralyzed and it has that yell in the beginning, it's not the guttural yell. There's something even more isolating about it. Yeah. You know, and that's that's what I think is really interesting about this record. Yeah, and also, I mean, if you put it in context with other bands that were making hardcore music, and I, and I hesitate to even call Black Flag a hardcore band at this point, you know, this is 1986, so you had, like, you know, Cro-Mags, you know, you had, you know, Agnostic Front, like, very, you know, great bands, but very much 
right down the middle with what they're doing, you know, musically. Like sure. it's like straight up like hardcore, like fast drums, you know, like very, very, uh, you know, sort of regimented sort of in their style. And then you have this expansive record by this band that was in, in some cases, in, you know, arguably one of the first hardcore bands. And now they're taking the direction into this other new realm, you know, and then like me, you know, I've, I'm a huge Rollins fan. I read, you know, read all the books and everything. And, and the, at that point, it's almost like the band was bored with hardcore punk. Like they were listening to the birthday party and the swans and like Osters and the Neubauten. And they were into all this, like really out there at the time out there, very, very pushing the envelope with what, with what they were doing musically. So, this record in that context makes so much sense to me, you know, and Greg Ginn, his infatuation with the Grateful Dead of all things, mm -hmm. you know, and making instrumental music. And like you said, challenging the standard band format with a vocalist and being like, okay, this is what we got. Go write some, write some vocals. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one thing is that, so there's video of their like last show before the, Re the reformation. There's, from Detroit, uh, I think it's, I believe it's called the Greystone or something. I can look it up later. And what's really cool is they're in that era where they're going to open up with an instrumental just to punish the crowd, which is great. And a lot of these songs take on specifically Paralyzes a little faster live, and it has an even different dynamic. And one of the songs I like sort of the least, um, which is, uh, sorry. Retired at 21, it actually sounds better live. Oh, like okay. it has a little more kick live. Yeah. So it's it's pretty cool that, you know, they, I think of that band as a muscle. And it, it goes back to what you said about Sabbath. I feel like they could play without a set list and it would work seamlessly. Like they would know what to do. And they can, they just adjust these dynamics to keep things interesting. And the fact that they're able to, go through a live set of a band that had been around for 10 years in a hardcore setting, kind of as hardcore as entering this different stage and add a different energy to it. Like they're not at the end of their career at their last show. They're just as good as when they started. If not, well, actually they're more powerful. I think so. I you thought, know? you know, I think like, you know, for me, you know, this is probably the more, the most meaningful record that they made in my opinion, you know, just personally on a personal level, just because I think, you know, I, I, when I first heard this record, I was like, it, it was, I'd never heard anything like it before, yet it referenced a lot of stuff that I was just starting to find out about. And it was being presented to me sort of within the vessel of Black Flag, a band that I was, you know, already a fan of, you know, and, you know, going back, we, you know, you and I always talk about the pre-internet days and like, you know, back in the eighties when I was a kid. You know, I only got, I got records in dribs and drabs. Like, whatever was available, I picked it up. So it's like, you know, I'd heard Damaged, you know, Slip It In. And for a long time, I didn't even realize there was a different singer in the band prior to Rollins. Like, I wasn't even aware of Des Kadena or any of these, you know, Keith Morris or Ron Reyes. Um, by the time I, I got to this record, I, I, you know, was well aware of everything. But initially, I thought, oh, yeah, this guy, Henry Rollins, you know, he's a crazy guy with long hair, sings in a hardcore band, tattoos, black flag. But I didn't know anyone came before him. So, um, so yeah, it was like taking that sort of very standardized hardcore and then hearing this kind of like put me on a path of like creating something of my own that, you know, it would take me 10, 15 years to do something that I felt was as powerful, that it was meaningful to me the way this record was meaningful to me. You know, and like you, you touched, we touched on this before when we were talking about this is that, you know, the thing you mentioned that I thought was really, really cool is like how this is a band like sort of in like the larval stage of the next part of their evolution as a band. It wasn't necessarily, it wasn't like, you know, what people always say, it sounds like a band breaking up like their last album. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's almost like lazy to categorize it that way. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a good a good point to go into these notes from Joe Carducci and Kira. So one thing Joe Carducci said, and you know, Joe Carducci's writing, all his books are fantastic. And if you're on Facebook, follow him because he's going to turn you on to things constantly. 
really articulate, really creative guy who was aligned with the band and worked at SST. And so he made a comparison that this record is the flip of my war. Um, he said, I was referencing to figuratively how side two and side one in relation to how, to how side two of my war was treated by the band, meaning the difficult test was on side two of my war and the pop was on side one. Whereas by the time of In My Head, Greg was leading with the challenging stuff. And he says, I went by the studio at one point and there were two inch reels all lined up on the floor of Total Access. There were labeled Squire Sessions, as in Billy Squire, which I took to mean <laughs> that Greg would sing and play guitar. Those multi-track two inch reels looked like more than one album. So there may have been before any of the albums were determined, presumably by Greg. And he went, he went on to say, you know, you should, you should talk to Kira because Kira is going to know a little more about this. So... I went and punished Kira on Facebook, and thank you, Kira, for being just amazing. Like, I, I value everyone's time, and I don't want to reach out to anyone unless I really want to get some intel, because this is an important record to me. And once I hit that level of, like, what, what actually happened here, I had to know. So she actually said... From the day I joined the band, part of our rehearsal time, often five hours a day, was made up of jamming. I put that in quotes because the format was not as loose as some jams. We generally worked on a riff that Greg would start, then Bill and I would join in. Greg would start to solo off the riff while I kept going, and Bill would hold it down and sometimes go off during the jam. These riff jams make up instrumental songs on some of the Black Flag records put out over the years before In My Head. Henry would generally come to practice and sing for the first couple of hours, sit down and write, but stay in the room with us. So the songs that in my head might have led to another instrumental records. We were playing these riff jams. We introduced a couple from Bill and I. Henry took the action of writing lyrics, for the most part, while he sat there and these songs were born. To my mind, that makes them some of the most special, because Henry's seeing his own words and feelings, not someone else's words. This definitely would not have been a solo record. This is all within the working of Black Flags, aside from and how Black Flag worked aside from Henry stepping up and turning it into a non-instrumental record. And I think that's super important, you know, that if you hear Kira explain how this thing came together, you can picture this group of songs and also the, you know, some were recorded by Chuck, uh, written by Chuck Dukowski and they have a different vibe. And you can hear some of Black Flag's more, you know, ripper kind of tunes, a little more tuneful, a little more on the nose. And then you hear these other things that were definitely started as an instrumental. And for Rollins to come in and actually step out of what he was, what he had mastered. I mean, he mastered being the hardcore vocalist. Yeah. To basically gave everyone a template of like, this is what you do. And then morphs into this totally different stage presentation and comes up with a different way to sing. And what you said that's super interesting, if you think about those records that came out in 1986... Age of Quarrel, right? Like the first Murphy's Law, um, TSOL Revenge. I mean, these are completely different records than what is... And this is... It's basically art metal. It's like the beginning of arty metal. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. It's it's hard to put it... It's its own category. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that the rest of like, you know, underground music catches up to Black Flag in the 90s. You know, in 1986, sure. it was like, you know, they were, there was, they were like this way ahead of its time kind of thing. Like this record is like something that stands alone as being unique and also sort of, um, you know, showing us what was going to be coming in the next 10 to 15, 20 years, really. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You know, I think like hardcore and punk and metal became more creative in the 90s. Like started pushing the, the boundaries, you know, and started mixing styles and, you know, back in the 80s, like having a metal kind of thing going on in a punk band wasn't necessarily something that was that was done for, you know, I mean, bands like the Cro-Mags or whatever. But but there wasn't this level of um, creativity, I think, um, coming out of that scene, you know. And, uh, yeah, I think like some of the stuff that came out on Amphetamine Reptile, like in the 90s, like Today is the Day and, you know helmet bands like that in the early stages there of their development that was kind of like the the result like the shockwave of this record dropping the shockwave was bands like that coming out you know and that was like 
young kids hearing this and then their minds being twisted and then creating, adding to the storyline with their own, their own brand of, of what they just heard, you know? Yeah. I, I was also trying to think of it in the context that around 1986, that's like proto grunge starting Melvin's are full swing. Yeah. And even those things are still, they're still way more rock and roll based than yeah. what's happening here. And, and I think that's a really great point that it took, Till being in the 90s where I think bands were a lot less self-conscious and we're just like, no, we want to just mix things up because this formula is done. Like, we get it. We know how to... You know, the hardcore blueprint's there. And again, to this day, I don't think there's been a, a band that came from the first wave of hardcore or early on that took things as far, except for Sack and Trust, but Sack and Trust is just so jazzy when they yeah. start to go out. It's its own thing. It almost, they start to get, like there's a difference between improvisation that has a blueprint and improvisation of let's just see what happens. And Gin's the master of controlled improvisation. He's just so good. It's something good's going to come out of that. Whereas Saccharine Trust, when it's, when it's great, like on, you know, the second, third record, there's some really cool stuff happening, but it's still very much, you can tell it was recorded live. Yeah. You know, yeah, like, definitely. You know, and also Saccharine Trust didn't have that same sort of physical, like physicality, that visceralness that mm-hmm. Black Flag had, you know, like, and that sort of goes back to Bill Stevenson and Rollins, you know, I mean, the rhythm section, you know, the, the drumming on the, on these records, the live drumming and Rollins' stage presence and just, you know, his, his whole like thing of like, you know, there's like all these distinct eras in his like sort of development, you know, there's like the, the kid from DC, there's like the guy who just joins Black Flag is following orders from the drill sergeant, Greg Ginn. <laughs> and then there's like the trippy Manson hippie, proto evil hippie version of Rollins. And then there's like Henry Rollins of the Rollins band, you know, and that the, the hippie version, I like to call that like, that's Henry. You know? Yeah, it's definitely Henry. That's Henry. <laughs> and this record, though, it's like we were talking about this earlier, how it is sort of the bridge between um, Rollins of Rollins' band and the Henry Rollins of the early era. Like, Henry is definitely the bridge between those two versions of himself. And, and then on this record, because he's actually allowed to write lyrics. Right. You know, and prior to this, Ginn was handling all the, all the chores. You know, Dukowski wrote some lyrics as well. But he wrote the lion's share of all the riffs, all the song arrangements, and all the lyrics. So this was like Rollins' green light to sort of express himself. And which I find like that fascinating that for their last album, he was allowed to do that, you know? Right. Without any... And and it always made me want more. Like, what would the next record sound like? Yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, they're pretty much saying he fought to say... You know, as much as like, I understand... Anything you read, he's sour of how that band ended. There's and why wouldn't you be? Because you work that hard and you spend that much time with people and you go through actual hard things that no one will ever have to deal with again, just to be a band. And to have the leader of the band quit, <laughs> it's it's insane. And you know you could you could say that you could see. I mean, he might have still done a solo record or whatever, but there's some progression on this record that is it's a massive leap. And like you said, it would have been interesting to see what else happened. But the thing that I kind of pulled out in going back to this record is that he starts to lean in on this repetition in the lyrics that I think works really well. And that you don't need to reinvent yourself every time it's, and it's, it's the Iggy pop trick, right? Like if you have a good lyric, just keep repeating it, beat it in people's heads. And you know, Rollins a big Stooges fan. And then that starts to, you know, you hear it on lifetime. I mean, the whole record, they're just like these very simple patterns that work really well with the, with the music. They don't have to do a lot of heavy lifting <clears throat> because it's just simple. And then, you know, if you think about it, that's what, dead guy in today is the day did they just leaned into that repetition and it and it's when there's so much going on with the music you have to have been in a band for 10 years to know to lean back like that and and say okay we're not all we're basically not all soloing at once you know like that it's tasteful and i think when when he 
transitions in you know the the poetry Henry hippie Henry when he goes back and kind of combines those two things in Rollins band it's even it's powerful in a different dimension and I think that's really cool and also I think that band goes off in in the direction they do it was cool that he wasn't like trying to be heavy in the same way you know he explored it it's like he's had three separate stages of heavy which is pretty interesting not, not that many people can say that yeah and uh yeah I, I i'm biased towards you know rollins in general because i've been a lifelong fan and um you know this this record like um to me you know this 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 whole podcast this whole thing of like classic records it's not so much classic records it's like the hidden sort of almost unsung classics in a lot of ways. So I should retitle mm-hmm. this thing because this record is like, you know, people will say classic records. Obviously we're talking about like damaged, right? And that is a great classic record, but I feel like damage definitely set the precedent for like hardcore music. But this record, I think is like a lot more of a subtle offering that sort of touched, you know, sort of nudged, like that that trajectory of a comet and pushed it into this whole other you know other orbit and that had this record not come out i feel like a lot of bands that we talked about like you know dead guy today is a day wouldn't even exist really oh yeah. sure i mean i think this is a cool way to look at it if i give you a grab bag of 10 classic like hardcore punk records of the same era and we could even go like you like it could be blitz angelic upstarts you know, early Black Flag, um, maybe even early Dead Kennedys, whatever. And I just say, go in and grab one. You're you're gonna get the same thing out of it. Like, yes, there might be one you connect with more. They're kind of they're they're flexing the same thing. And punk is gonna exist in the same way with any of those records. Like the thing's gonna keep going. It's semi. It's like fast anthemic music, disenfranchised kids. I get it. This record, it stands on its own. It comes out of nowhere as much as it is completely calculated because you see the progression of the band. And if I play this for you, you immediately have an opinion, a visceral reaction to it. And it's it's just one of those things. You know, I've heard people who hated it at first and now it's their favorite record. And that's to me, is classic because it had to win you over because it was good the whole time. Maybe you just didn't get it or you weren't, there to to be interested in it you know it's not a it's not a gimme of a record and it gets i don't know i notice different things about it on how i listen to it whether it's headphones or you know whatever medium and it's definitely the black flag record i go back to the most you know it's almost like if i think of the cure like i know their big songs so much i never need to hear them again in my life i know every note of them Uh, and i know damage you know i'm gonna hear it in a bar i'm gonna i might hear it in a supermarket at this point yeah, <laughs> you right. know, I might yeah totally above when i'm buying broccoli so i don't i don't have the urgency to hear it it's not something i sit down with like i do with this record and that also reminds me i was i had a period where i just wanted to learn every possible song i could learn like if i if i own the record i wanted to learn it it's one of the few records i had no interest in learning any riff on it because I, w- I wanted to keep that magic in a weird way. Like, There's nothing worse than hearing something you think is the most amazing thing ever, and then you're like, oh, fuck, it's just that. And you're like, it almost pisses you off because you're like, oh, it's so simple. That That's the beauty of it. This record, it's, it was just one of those things in my head. I had no interest in ever wanting to play a note of it. I just want to appreciate it as it is. You were saying that you got into the Black Flag records like in chronological order. Yeah. So you, you like were aware of this record, but you waited or something. Yeah, how, absolutely. That... I mean, part of that was economy. You know, just like the money I had. Yeah. Uh, two things of that was so I had a subscription to this BMX magazine, Freestyling, and the, a lot of the guys who wrote for that magazine end up working on Jackass later on, uh, including like Spike Jones and Jeff Tremaine, who just did the the Dirt. And they were a cool magazine in that it wasn't like a jock magazine. They had this column called Noise, and they did this triple uh, 
1986 triple record release for Gone, Painted Willie, and Black Flag. So I, I, it's like one of the live records or something. That like who's got the ten and a half? I forget, but I have the PDF uh, somewhere. Anyways, and they describe Black Flag and they say they play for the sake of playing and they play for the crowd. And it was just kind of cool that they're doing their own thing, but they're very cognizant of the crowd. And I was just like, I never read a live review that wasn't just the band got up, they played the hits, you know, it was this intimate thing where like they even catered the show. Like they had free bologna sandwiches for the kids, which is fucking insane, you know, and like gave out free records. It just sounded like the coolest thing of all time. So I got damaged. Right. And then, you know, I start going in order, you know, next trip to the record store. I didn't have it in my head, and you know that was next on my my list. And there was this older dude we couldn't drive yet, and uh, he was a like an eighty a true eighties punk guy, you know, a little bit of an artifact of an era. He skated, but it was more or less just a kind of a social device. And he had a car, it's like beat up Plymouth, and he was going to give us a ride into Boston to go skating and probably buy records. Like I just remember the day was really cold and you know, we're all jammed into this car. He picks us up. We're in Haverhill mass at this parking garage. I met up with my friend and you know, we're on our way to, to drive to Boston and he goes, grab a tape. So for whatever reason, he had this plastic bag of cassettes in the back seat instead of the front. And I just looked in and I was like, Oh, in my head, I never heard that. So, you know, it was like a lot of chatter. Everyone's it's just fucking rowdy kids. And I'm so like, I couldn't tell you I'd be full of shit if I was like, and it came on in the middle of, no, I don't know. It just fucking came on. And I was so focused on hearing this because I wanted, it sounded like nothing else. And we go through the day, nothing happens. You know, it's just very typical, boring winter day. And I don't know if it was because I wanted another ride from this dude or something, but I go, Hey man, um, can I borrow that black flag cassette so I can make a copy of it? He goes, just take it. I still have it. And on the back of it on the J card, it says shit in black marker. So I assume (laughs) he just never fucking liked it. Oh wow. Yeah. Maybe he was mad that I picked it or whatever. And then after that, I used to listen to it. I would walk to school and I didn't live in a woody area, but there was like, this undeveloped path that was like the shortcut to walk to school. And I would listen to that and it just felt so like isolating and cavernous to just fucking walk through the woods and, and trip out on this record, you know? And it like, it was the perfect setting to soak. Cause I'm about to go to this jail where I fucking hate everyone so much. And I'm like the most volatile asshole when I'm there. And it's almost instead of listening to like rain and blood and like, basically wanting to be like the worst person on earth, like amped up. It was almost like meditative to listen to that record and just fucking roam around and almost, uh, I mean, saying it was therapeutic when you're fucking 13 years old or whatever is like way too much of a stretch, but it was just, it was just more interesting. Like it's a very sinister sounding cool record and the, the tempo shifts and everything. It just, I don't know. It, it, the pacing of it and the fact that it wasn't heavy for the sake of being heavy. It just, it had a lot of depth to it. It was a, it was a cool record to, to get to sit with at that time. Like, you know, it wasn't a Saturday night's fun. Let's put the blast this and, and be in a good mood record. Oh, definitely. <laughs> it's not a good times record. No. Yeah. So do you have any, uh, standout tracks on this record that you, that are particularly, uh, meaningful to you? I mean, it's a, softball but in my head just still it's just and paralyzed i don't know i i I, uh i waffle between both of them but in my head just that that riff is it's so recognizable and it hit me in the same way when i heard as when i heard the song black sabbath yeah of where did this come from you know it's just so relentless um and the in the lyrics are perfect i always love that song but one that i kind of picked out uh I thought White Hot's kind of interesting. It almost has some... You could hear that some of those Seattle bands had, had taken a lot from that. And it's 
it's cool the, how the dynamic shifts in that song. It's, it's a pretty interesting track. Um, and then one other note, but not also Black Love. I mean, I could go all... It's tough for me to pick, pick tracks. One thing of note, when I was going through this, it's uh, Society's Tease. You know, and that's like a later song in the track. And after you get through the sort of the intro, the main riff sounds like Stefan Egerton in Descendants. It's a very Descendants sounding song, which is funny because obviously he's so insanely uh, influenced by Gin. Yeah, definitely. But, uh, you know, this is happening at the same time, I think, uh, Descendants All came out or or maybe uh, Enjoy. And I was I was just listening to it and thinking like it's even melodic for it's probably their most melodic song and it's almost pop punky it's re- it's really an outlier on the record and now I can't unhear it like now it just sounds and especially Bill Stevens playing uh, Stevenson playing on it too it just sounds like a Descendants track to me I could see that yeah I mean especially it's funny all is like a less misanthropic. Uh, Black Flag, really, on that that record, all the all record, not the band necessarily, yeah. but that Descendants record. I mean, when I first started getting into, into the Descendants, I noticed that discordant, you know, Stephen Egerton style, and I was like, yeah, this is definitely borrowing pretty heavily from Greg Ginn, you know, and it all made sense because you know they share a member and Bill Stevenson. I'm sure you know they've they're from Southern California. They played shows together, et cetera, et cetera. You know, he's playing the same guitar even. Yeah, exactly. Like he wasn't hiding anything. Yeah. 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 What are the tracks that stand out for you or the ones you like the best? Well, for me, you know, almost the same in my head and paralyzed and black love too, is a song that, uh, black love really, like we were talking about aggression and like Henry Rollins and, you know, sort of these like, malformed intentions that a young man might have in an early age. And uh, Black Love is sort of sets up the character of someone who's not necessarily looking to do outward violence, but just wants to sort of be left alone in like isolation. And I think a lot of, a lot of this record of in my head, I mean, even the title in my head is not, it's someone who has this, sort of self-hating like inward you know sort of uh intention as opposed to like an outwardly violent intention like someone who would simmer you know in well, misery i i know there's been like a lot of back and forth about the shed you know whether yeah. the shed was a shed this record is definitely in my shed like it's it sounds like a dude who's just bummed out alone who he's not in the party scene you know i know he's doing spoken word at this time and but it's like a lot of writing is a lot of inward looking. And I think Black Love specifically is one of the ones, because even Paralyzed, it has that like bluesier kind of chorus that maybe it wasn't an instrumental or maybe it was more an instrumental like of a like an early Gone track. But Black Love sounds like it had no intention of ever having lyrics on it, yeah. vocals on it. And the way he he goes into this new mode where it's like whispery and a little confusing. I thought that was amazing. You know, yeah. It's, no, it, totally. It's like completely unexpected. Yeah. That that's um, definitely in my soundtrack, you know, for uh, just being alone. <laughs> that's like definitely one of those like 2am by yourself songs, you know, and this record in general is a by yourself record. You're not going to like, you know, rage with this record on. No, it's like we said, it's like the least fun record of all. It's a bummer, you know? <laughs> you know, and, and In My Head has like the best line ever of I want to be the bullet that goes ripping through your skull. Yeah, while it's like the, <laughs> that really shuffly beat too. Like the, the juxtaposition on this record is what I think is the best. Yeah. You know, they, nothing's a gimme when it's, when the music's really heavy the lyrics play a different way. When the music's really quiet that's when the lyrics get the darkest there's more effects than any black flag record. There's some really bad cuts in the overdubs. You can tell like stuff. It almost sounds like really off tape splicing at times, Uh which makes it more, which I think is awesome. Like whether it's intentional or not, you're kind of in this like meditative groove. And all of a sudden something just like cuts in and out and it, it just contributes to that unease. 
You know, it's funny. We were talking about bands that are influenced by this record. And I feel like in a lot of ways, the Laughing Hyenas sort of taking, you know, definitely a heavily blues-based sort of operation. But I feel like there's a real big later era Black Flag thing going on with the Laughing Hyenas. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's again, it's like an update of the Stooges template. Yeah. And, and they just happen to do it. I mean the guitar playing in Laughing Hyenas gets pretty noty and intricate at times, which makes it really great. So yeah, you could see like, what's the EP crawl. Like yeah, there's crawl, like yeah. definitely a good, like, like parallel there. Yeah. And John Brandon, like a equally as ferocious, like front man as Henry to, Rollins. To this day, the most powerful voice I've ever heard in person, you know, like I remember walking down downstairs to the middle East and, having my hand on the wall and it feeling like I could feel this band. <laughs> yeah. You know, and like just, you know, waiting to go down to see this band and that tort definitely the most tortured thing I've ever seen live. And again, when you put it in the blues context and you strip down things and you just make it really simple, it sometimes has more power than when people try to overdo it. You know, it's just, each part of the hyenas and each part of black flag is just such a distinct thing. And that, and I don't know the way it works on this record is, I don't know. It's again, I wish, I wish they did more. And if you haven't heard the, I can see you EP, that's, you know, a great extension of this as well. Yeah, definitely. It's out there. I mean, there's probably, is there like some sort of version release that has that incorporated on it? Like of this record? I think only on the CD version because I think it would be too probably too long for the vinyl before oh, yeah. it uh, true it would start to degrade it. Hey, do you know do you know who Billy Ruane was? Oh in, yeah, from uh, in Boston. Yeah, all his stuff's being archived on YouTube now. Yeah, man, it's amazing. It's like unfortunately there's no Black Flag footage in there, but a band that we mentioned, the Laughing Hyenas. There's a really killer Laughing Hyenas set on there. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Billy Ruane was this. Um, personality in boston uh from you know in, into the late 80s into the 90s and he sometimes he put shows on and but he was this guy that was just around all the time big personality and uh unfortunately he passed away a number of years ago but uh someone's archiving all this footage that he shot of various bands and it's like local bands and like killdozer you know like yeah there's there's like <laughs> a, a, a huge bandwidth of different bands that he has archived up there yeah, there's some pretty interesting things that once I discover that channel, I'd just start searching within the channel and be like, well, does he have cudgel footage? And whoa, he had, I mean, anything I could think yeah. of. And cudgel were a pretty cool band. Like, I think someone invented some dumb genre calling them chimp rock, but they're up. That's not an app description. They're like a cool, heavy band from Boston that I think didn't get their due. But again, stumble on that youtube page you're gonna see some pretty incredible stuff but like i was saying earlier it's um you know back in the 80s you kind of you didn't have like everything at your disposal like you kind of picked sure. up whatever what you could find and i remember i'd heard black flag and um this kid from california turned me on to them like you know he went out to california one summer and those guys are always one step ahead you know mm -hmm. they know about all the cool bands and everything <laughs> And he brought the uh, the Let Them Eat Jelly Beans discography back. All right, so that's how I found out about Black Flag. And then WXCI, which is like a college radio station out of Danbury, Connecticut, on their punk show, I heard Black Coffee. And I was like, the song's cool. It was like Fast Black Sabbath, you know, or mm -hmm. who, a band that I'd worshipped, you know, prior to my immersion into punk rock music. Uh, so I'm like, I need to get a record by this band. But I went down to the record store, and the only record they had was Family Man. So I bought it, though. But I still bought it. Right. So Family Man was my introduction to the band, and I put it on. I had no idea that it was like, you know, I mean, I know it says it on the record. Right. But like, what the fuck does this mean? You know, so I put it on. It was like, side A is like all the Rollins stuff. Side B is the, uh, the instrumental with Armageddon Man. And I'm like... I didn't even know if I liked it really. I was like, I don't, this makes me feel very uncomfortable, this entire record. Yeah. 
So I didn't listen to it for like a month or two. And then finally I started thinking about it again. I think I saw the Repo Man movie. And that kind of reawakened my infatuation with Black Flag. But once I understood the feelings I was having, I was all in with the band. So I was able to get, you know, slip it in. Had to make sure that my parents never saw that record cover. Because I, you know, I, I had a stack of records in my room. So I made sure that Slip It In was like the third or fourth record in that pile. Um, but it wasn't until I got into college that this kid had a cassette, the cassette version of In My Head. And I didn't even know the record was out. Like Black Flag, I think, had broken up at that point. I didn't even know they had a, a last album until I found this. This kid came up with a cassette. I remember we were listening to it freshman year in college and i was like man how come i didn't know this record came out you know and that's just kind of how it was back in 86 man you know you don't you don't know what the fuck's going on ever really it's not like you know van halen puts an album out everyone knows about it there's an mtv video radio play all that kind of stuff yeah where do you advertise a black flag record like they wouldn't even let those things be advertised in a uh, maximum rock and roll i don't think yeah i think you're right so it was yeah. like maybe flip side and yeah like, they didn't have Flipside many places on the East no, Coast. No, man. <laughs> and, and like that, once again, my, you know, my freshman year of college, I was in Boston University, and that was like, you know, coming from the small town I grew up in with the only access I had to real culture was Trash American Style in Danbury, uh, which is a great place, but that's literally was the only outlet that I had. You go to Boston, suddenly there's like the Boston Phoenix, and you're reading about stuff. There's articles about these things. You know, there was an interview with Henry Rollins in there. And in 1986, Henry Rollins was still a, a scary guy, man. Like, he was still, you didn't quite know how you felt about that dude back then, you know? He was like a, this feral, you know, sort of wild man, you know, that you didn't know if he was a good guy or a bad guy. You weren't sure where he was coming from, really, you know? Um, you know I know I liked the music, but I hadn't discovered all of his writing and sort of the insights into, you know. But listening to, um, in my head, though, and getting into the lyrics and it's it's ironic that he did write that it's it's ironic in a way because i just assumed at that age that he wrote that he wrote the lyrics and then years later i just discovered that greg greg ginn had written most of the lyrics but this turning out that what this was a record that he wrote the lyrics on and that's when i started getting into the identifying with like you know the songwriting his lyrics and like the kind of trip that he had and made me explore his other writing so so I think that's why this record, the, the same way that like, like the earlier material, I loved it, but this is when I really started getting into the psyche of the band that was on this record. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. Also, so if you, when you think about it, when he's singing other people's lyrics, like a lot of the knocks now, because we're taking it out of context and, and actually even, you know, in, in reading about it, there was some, uh, people accusing him of being misogynistic or like some of the Pettibone flyers were insane, you know, slip it in, whatever. And even Kira has said like, but he's, he's more seeing these, he's seeing Greg Ginn's take on that. And then on this record, when he's singing about love or women or whatever, it's totally different. Yeah. No, you're right. Actually. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's, it's simpler. It's less direct. It's, it's, I don't want to say creepier because that sets it up in the wrong way, but it's it's more poetic and it has more context. And you know, like uh, Black Love, you know, it, it it's just a different vibe. And I think that's where you know, and I'm not saying like Rollins is the greatest lyricist of all times, but I also you can't be too harsh on something that was written that long ago. But when you think of the leap between what he's singing on this record versus you know bolt of lightning through his legs like it's a lot different yeah definitely you know? yeah you know and the other thing too is i mean you know in this day of intolerance you know <laughs> this this age that we're in right now you know when you're when you're a young person like that everything's intense you know like every aspect of your life is like on 11 you know so your your output creatively is going to be this like amped up version of intensity you know it's going to be everything it's just like maxed out you're feeling everything in such raw emotional terms that of course the music you know it's going to have like a level of like 
you know, maybe borderline immaturity in some ways. Like, you know, I'm sure like the version of someone that age 21 and their, the way they express themselves about their feelings and some of the, you know, without, without the context of having ex- life experiences versus when someone's 45 or 50 are completely different, you know? And, and that's why, like, you listen to like old, old bands, like music made by young men, young women, young people. You can't really use the same lens to analyze it as if someone's, you know, a full-grown adult person making that music. You know what I mean? It still has this, like, air of, you know, this, I'm gonna, for lack of a better term, immaturity, you know, even though I find this record to be incredibly, like, it's like Ian Curtis writing all those songs when he was 23 years old. You know sure. what I mean? Like, you, the kid, he was a kid, basically. Yet his lyrics and the work that he did was like ageless, you know, timeless. Yeah, I, I agree. It's 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 easy in our, our social climate now to look back at what an eighteen year old kid did in nineteen eighty two and pick it apart as being juvenile because it was completely juvenile and there was eight T V channels then and yeah. you know, it's just a different a different age and you know, some of some of what Black Flag did is totally silly. Like and it, yeah, TV some party, of it intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. And some of it is just not well you know, it's not they're not always throwing darts at the bullseye. But this record, I don't have a there's the, my only complaints about it are the songs that sound too much like early Black Flag. And they're still good. But you know, like but my biggest complaint is when they sound too much like themselves. So that's a pretty damn good record in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, totally. So that's it for uh, Black Flag in my head. And uh, once again, thanks thanks for uh, stopping by tonight, Anthony. Absolutely. Love being here and love talking about these records. And thanks for listening, everyone. See you next week. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio weekly podcast. Tune in next week and see what we have in store for you. The show is available on all streaming platforms apple Podcasts, itunes spotify etc also be sure to check out gimme radio streaming on the web ios or android for one of the best metal communities exclusive merch interviews with artists and so much more i'll catch you guys next week take care It's like you have like some beers that that they do for bands, and it's just basically like Pabst Blue Ribbon, like you know, fucking <laughs> yeah. cool like container, you know. But I think that actually tastes pretty good. No, it actually has like good flavor, a little yeah. bite to it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it was pretty cool. They, the guy sent me a, he gave me a few different types. Like he has a sour, some IPAs, like things oh, nice. like that. And um, yeah, he gave. It's funny. The other like Friday night, we drove out to uh, you know KCBC and. I thought he was going to give me like a couple of four packs. Mm-hmm. He gave me like two cases of beer oh, with, with yeah. like these additional like other stuff that he's doing. It was pretty cool. Oh, that's rad. Yeah.